We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. We also acknowledge the contributions of individuals with lived mental health experience. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode for a new podcast called Our Place, released in association with the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and Big Health in Australia. My name is Reba and I am your host for today. Today I have a very special guest with me, Samira Qureshi. Samira Qureshi is an occupational therapist and sexual health educator who has spent the last 12 years working with Muslim communities across Canada and the United States. Her work has specifically focused on sexual and mental health education for Muslims across the lifespan, including topics such as puberty, menstruation, healthy relationships, sex and intimacy in marriage, pornography, and how parents can educate their kids about sexual health. Last year, Samira transitioned from working in nonprofit spaces and founded her own business, Sexual Health for Muslims, a comprehensive online sexual health education platform for Muslims accessible from the comfort of their home. Samira's approach is heavily rooted in Islamic spirituality and psychology, integrated with accurate and holistic sexual health information. She believes that the more we know about ourselves through our faith tradition and combine that with sexual health information, the more informed the decisions about our sexual health will be. Thank you so much for joining us today, Samira. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to connect with you, Ariba, and appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Likewise, we are so excited to have you on board. Um, And that's such an impressive bio, mashallah. Can you tell us a little bit more, I guess, about the work that you do? What made you set up this Instagram platform? Who inspired you to take a step in this direction? Yeah, so I coincidentally started working in the field of sexual health many years ago in Canada, and I was working in Islamic schools and saw a need around sexual health and a lot of Muslim youth struggling when they were becoming teenagers, dealing with puberty and being attracted to people and not sure what to do. And so I was mentored by a professional in the field. And I remember telling her, I want to do sex ed for Muslim youth, but I want to do it using Islam, because I just thought that there was a connection there. And she helped me develop programs. And then she kind of taught me how to implement them. So it was coincidence. And I've been kind of doing that work since then, mostly with organizations, though. So, you know, NGO, nonprofit work can be really limited, because there's funding. And I was kind of taken into the realm of sexual violence. And I really miss the sex ed work. And so I, you know, quit last year because I wanted to focus on sex ed. It was what I started and it was, it's been a passion of mine for many years. And then Islam is often talked about in limited ways and not often helpful ways with Muslims. So I wanted to uplift what I've learned about Islamic spirituality to create more compassionate spaces for Muslims to then be able to make decisions when they have all of the information. So Instagram is a lot of where I do my work. And then I have courses I'm developing and a website. So I'm trying to get to Muslims online so that there's not limits to them getting the information they need, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. Absolutely. That's so impressive because that's something that 
we lack, at least here in Australia, the youth, youth here really need to have conversations about this, especially from an Islamic perspective. So having that online platform, I'm sure it's going to benefit everyone worldwide. And we really, really need this for our young people. So that's such amazing work. I guess coming back to what you just said, this whole notion of sexual health is so stigmatised in our communities. And the importance of educating it, it's so imperative because aside from, I guess, the, the joy factor that it brings, it's more so the health and hygiene that's important that we don't really know much of. I just want to ask you, why is it still so stigmatised even today? Yeah, that's a question I still receive and I talk about a lot. There's a few things that I think contributed to the stigmatization. The first big one is the way education about Islam is being done. So if we look at where a lot of our education comes from, it's from mostly like Saudi Arabia and very literal um, reduced down versions of Islam that focus on halal and haram, do and don't. And so when that's brought over to places like the West or Australia, for example, in Europe, what happens is, is that Muslims start thinking about themselves and their lives as a bunch of rules and practices. And at the same time, sexuality and sexual health was removed out of our faith tradition. So, you know, all the hadith that are there about intimacy and menstruation and about seeking spouses, for example, Muslims don't know that's there because our education systems have erased them. There's been colonization outside of Islam and colonization within. So it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know because we haven't been exposed to it, right? So I always tell Muslims it's not your fault. Like there's a gap in us not understanding our tradition the way it should be. The second thing that happens, and I'm speaking as an immigrant to Canada as well, is that a lot of immigrants to countries, whatever generation you're part of, a lot of families are worried about Muslim youth keeping their Islamic identity. So what happens is when you move to a country that's not Muslim majority, their parenting shifts and it becomes all about you're Muslim. We don't do this. Other people do it. We don't date. We don't do this. And all of a sudden there's not conversations happening while kids are going to public high school and they're really confused because we're not helping them with the skills they need to remain Muslim and integrate. So I think that's another issue that happens a lot. And then the third issue, I think, is that when sex ed happens in schools, it's not taking religion into account. There's this disconnect between religion and spirituality and sexuality. And people will say, well, you know, there's no overlap between the two. Like faith and religion is a barrier to pleasure and sex. And that's not at all the case, Islam or other faith traditions. So mainstream sex ed doesn't take into account our values as Muslims, for example. So then even if we do get sex ed in school, it's not really in line with who we are. So then we're also getting missed informa like information that's not wrapped up in who we are. I resonate very much with your second point. The other day I was asking my mum, oh, why is it that, you know, all these years come up, come to 24 nearly, I don't know much about this. You've never spoken to me about this. Never spoken to my younger sister about this. We are very much kept in the dark about this. And that was exactly what she said. She was like, we have this fear as parents that 
we don't want you to engage out of curiosity just because we kind of have this conversation with you. And from her perspective, I completely understand. There's, there's that, of course, we, we need to respect that our parents have this fear. But on the other hand, it's just, God, I wish I knew more than what I saw on like a TV show or read from a novel, like Fifty Shades. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I I think so many parents and, you know, in, in my work with parents, I tell them I understand, like you said, that you're scared. And you need to know that it's a misunderstanding that education leads to curiosity because it does the opposite. Like we actually answer kids' questions and it's in line with your Islamic values. When we know the why, we're more likely to do something. But when we don't know the why, we want to find out. And I think that's what's happening a lot in our spaces. And parents do the best they can and they need support too, I think. Yeah, that's so important. Just as much as we do, they should be teachings out there for our guardians as well. So they just kind of know what path to go down, which that is also something that's, I guess, lacking. Yes, definitely. And going off how limited our conversation is about everything, there are certain constructs that we aren't really aware of when it comes to sexual health, one of them being the whole notion of consent. It's such a big and important notion, but I think there's like this gray area around it or just a lot of confusion that young women especially they aren't aware what consent is and why obtaining consent is so important even if you are married or in a relationship they just don't know how to go about with that entire notion so firstly why is consent so important consent you're right is something that definitely muslims lack holistic understanding about because What I see happening, and I worked in the sexual violence field before this, is that consent spoken about in terms of sexual assault or rape, and it's spoken about in terms of like dating relationships. And so Muslim women, especially in men, think it doesn't apply to them because, quote, Muslims don't date when actually they are dating. So consent, if we look at it from like a spiritual perspective of what Islam says, within marriage your sexual intimacy cannot go against the compassion and love of your marriage, of what Islam says about that. So that means that since marriage is all about mutual needs and love and rahmah, compassion, sex and intimacy also need to be about that. Since there's no force in marriage, there's no abuse allowed in marriage, coercion, there also can't be force, coercion, manipulation, guilt tripping with sex and intimacy. So consent in marriage is not about like, hey, husband, want to have sex tonight? Like, it's not that like black and white. It's more about talking to each other about how you're feeling in terms of your desire. Like, are you desiring intimacy? You know, do you have the energy for intimacy? There's a misunderstanding that sex in marriage is spontaneous and fireworks. And it's not. It's actually a lot of work and a lot of like, getting people ready and using foreplay and scheduling time and space and ensuring you're not stressed because stress shuts down sexual pleasure. So consent in marriage is a conversation that always happens about, are we meeting each other's sexual needs and pleasure? And there can be a conversation about, I don't feel like having intercourse because. So we can say, not tonight for example, because we're given, you know, Islamic 
allowance to say no for many reasons. So it's a negotiation and both spouses have equal rights within sexual pleasure and marriage. And in fact, a lot of our tradition says women need to be pleasured before men and that women can ask for sexual pleasure just as men can ask. So there's a lot of mutuality and there's a misunderstanding that Muslim husbands need to be prioritized. And it's just not true when we look at what our tradition says and when we look at consent being ongoing conversations with spouses. So really what I'm hearing is this is one thing that's that's supposed to be ongoing in the duration of your relationship. You mentioned, I guess, a fair few things there, but how can we, I guess, start to have that conversation, especially if we're not too familiar? Or, you know, sometimes it's plain like, no, I don't want to do it today. and You can't really explain yourself. How can we start to have those kind of conversations? Yeah, I often will tell Muslims that we need to work on building our knowledge first before we are having those conversations. So just like you said, a lot of us don't know how to express what we're feeling. Like I can imagine if I was not working in this field and I'm trying to communicate to my husband why I'm having difficulty getting in the mood, how challenging that would be. Like, what would my words be? And it would just come out like, no, or I don't want to. So I often say like to Muslim young people, learn about sex and pleasure and your own desire and learn the language of how to communicate that. So those are all things that take time to learn, but we can do that when we're single. We don't want to wait, ideally, to learn about sex when we're married and about to have sex. Like that feels like it's too late. (laughs) We want to learn about it before, just like We want to know what our menstrual cycle is before we start menstruating so we're not freaking out. So I always tell young people and adults who aren't even married, learn about this stuff now. And the more you learn, you'll empower yourself to have language. And then you can come up with sentences and scripts like, I'm not feeling in the mood because. So instead of intercourse, can we cuddle and do other things, for example? So there's language there to help you. Right. No, that's great. I feel like that's something that I need to kind of start doing as well. And ideally, I guess, having the conversation of sex with your significant other or when you're in an initial relationship, when is the best time to do that? Yeah, a very common question that I get. Let's say you're getting to know somebody and you have committed to get to know them for the purpose of marriage. And COVID being what it is, let's say you're able to see each other in person. It's really important when you are meeting somebody in person and spending time with them, that there's a mutual understanding of values and boundaries. So I would say that when you're starting to emotionally get to know them spiritually, you're getting to like meet their friends and other people, that would be a good time to say, we're getting to know each other and we're developing feelings. Can we chat about intimacy and sex, because I want to share with you what my values are. And a lot of Muslims are like, what? Like sex before marriage isn't allowed. So why are you even talking about this? And the reality is a lot of Muslims are engaging in sexual activity before marriage because we haven't been taught ways that are healthy, right? So you want to be able to communicate to your significant other, for example, I'm not okay with any contact before marriage, physical contact. I want to wait because 
I want to get to know you and work on myself spiritually. And then sex and marriage is a form of spiritual worship. So that's why. Whereas other people might be like, well, actually, my values are different because we have an intention of getting married. So we know what Islam ultimately says, and we're living human beings with free will. So we get to choose what we feel is best for us. So that means that we should talk about it because making an assumption is actually not good because there's been situations that happen where people are pressured into sex or they feel like they're pushed into it. And if they don't, the relationship will end, right? So it's dangerous not to talk about it. And that's a very common thing that's going on here, at least. Everyone has like that frame of thought that, like you said, we we have the intention to get married and partners are kind of going with the flow. I think that's how I would put it. And engaging in something internally, they're like, no, I I don't believe in this. My consciousness says otherwise, but externally, but he's my partner, right? I need to give him that sense of satisfaction. It's it's kind of been fundamental that females kind of take a back step and give what their partners want. And saying no is such a challenge for young women, especially. And it just all comes down to, I guess, that pressure and coercion in a way. It's common. And I often work with women and say, if you have to sacrifice your values and what you want before you're married, it's actually not a good sign. Because then what's going to happen after marriage, not only between you and your future spouse, but also internally, it starts to create a lot of difficult feelings when we're not acting in line with who we are. So I've talked to women one-on-one and I've told them, look, I know it's hard, but you need to be assertive. And if the other person's not respecting you, I would say as somebody who's been divorced before, like take that as a sign that it's not a healthy sign when a man does not respect you and your values about your body. Because I also joke, like no one dies from not having sex. So the fact that a man is so entitled actually says a lot about his internal condition of who he is. So I think that's something to be aware of that we shouldn't be sacrificing who we are for other people because then we'll never be able to get what we want. Exactly. That's that's such an important, I guess, takeaway message. There are certain things that we need to consider the premarital phase and, and having that conversation is so important. But in certain cultures, even that premarital phase, you can't have such open conversations. So how do you know that later on, This isn't something that's going to recurringly happen. Yeah, it's hard to know without talking about it because then you'll only find out in marriage. And that all depends on if the spouse is open to working on things, right? Like it can lead to unhealthy relationships where the power shifts to one person. It can become even abusive. But I think it's really unfortunate that families and cultures are preventing very important conversations from happening because ultimately this is the well-being, safety, and health of their child. And we don't live in the 800th century anymore. Like this is a very different time. So we need to be having conversations based on the reality of life. And that also respects our tradition. Those two are not mutually exclusive. No, absolutely. And I'd be interested to know, I guess, moving from that as women, What are our rights when it comes to sexual intercourse in the context of a relationship? 
Islam talks a lot about marital rights of sex with both spouses. And for women, it's interesting that it's actually expanded on quite a bit more. So for example, there's a lot of text about a woman's right to say not tonight for sexual intercourse based on fatigue, stress, based on illness, obviously menstruation, if there's children around, if her emotional needs are not being met, like she doesn't feel like her husband's giving her emotional attention. That's another reason why, because then it makes her feel like she's just there to please her husband, but she's not getting emotionally fulfilled. So for example, like a husband can't be not affectionate with his wife and demand sex. Like those two just don't go together. So a woman can say, actually, I don't feel like I'm getting my emotional needs met. I need time with you. I need to hear from you and to feel comforted. So there's a lot of reasons to say no, like not tonight. And then also there's a woman's right to sexual pleasure. And there's a lot of text that actually talks about women needing to be sexually fulfilled before the male and acknowledging that men sometimes are sexually fulfilled faster than women. So men should take their time to take participation in foreplay and affection before intercourse itself. So it's it's fascinating that Islam looks at pleasure as beyond sexual intercourse and that we need to use other forms of sexual intimacy and physical intimacy. The last thing I'll mention is that uh, wife and husband can talk about birth control and contraception. So they can talk about family planning and do we want to use protection, right? Whether it's a condom or birth control pill. So that conversation should also be a part of sex and intimacy in marriage, right? And women have a right to express themselves and what their body wants and needs. And men should ultimately not be controlling women, in terms of their bodies. It should be a mutual conversation and negotiation. Wow. I I personally did not know half of these things. So this is very, um, I guess, insightful in that sense that it goes into, I guess, a more deeper root of intimacy and how women actually have more rights than what we thought we did. That just goes to show just how beautifully rooted our religion is. And these things are so important to know. And just not knowing, at least for me personally, it comes off as a bit of a surprise. God, I wish these things were kind of talked about. (laughs) No, this this is great. Thank you. Yeah, and that's why I think it's so important to have resources available for women and also for men, because a lot of the times men are misinformed and then that causes so many issues. So I agree that women should be empowered and We also need to look at the other side of the equation and empower men to kind of embrace women's rights holistically as well. Especially because it's been such a continuous kind of cycle. Men automatically assume, and of course, we can't blame them that this is how it's been and this is how it's going to be. So, no, absolutely. Yeah. Young men and young women (laughs) need this. Mm -hmm. What about when it comes to sexual hygiene practices? What are some of the rulings there from an Islamic perspective? Yeah, so getting ready for marriage means that when sexual intercourse happens, that we engage in ritual purification after that. So ghusl, so the same method that women use after menstruation is also done after sexual intercourse, and that kind of purifies. And then from a health perspective, 
to prevent urinary tract infections, both men and women should use the bathroom after sexual intercourse just to ensure that they're releasing anything that they need to release. It's a good practice for both men and women to do. And of course, there's religious perspectives, but it kind of depends on which school of thought you follow. In general, though, with sexual health practices with sex and intimacy, there's options to use lubrication. And you should also be aware of what you're putting on and in your body, right, to ensure that there's nothing chemical like related in there that's going to disrupt your natural genital fluids and such environment. And then a lot of women are like thinking about grooming and they're not really sure what to do. And that's a personal preference, obviously. Like there's a lot of misunderstanding from pornography about expectations of women's bodies, especially their, you know, pelvic health area, and their, you know, reproductive organs. So it's really a matter of realizing everybody's body looks different. And what we see or are exposed to is not always accurate in terms of what we see through pornography. Yeah, that's an important point that you raised. I was recently reading, just I guess out of curiosity, a forum where people were talking about getting into arranged marriages and how difficult this kind of conversation was for them to have. And they went into, I guess, their first night based off of what they've seen on pornography and one particular individual was fairly distressed in that the intimate act that they had engaged in actually resulted in divorce, just based mm-hmm. off of what he'd seen online and what he thought their partners would kind of enjoy. And I think that's such an important point to be raised. What you see online is not a depiction of reality, whether it's the actual act itself, whether it's how women's bodies are so different in how they look and that kind of fantasy and world that everybody is in, it's not true at all. It's so important to say that pornography is not sexual health education. It's the opposite of it. And it's designed to create sensational internal brain reactions that become very much addicting. So I often will encourage men, if you are exposed to or watching or consuming pornography, you have a lot of unlearning to do. There's actually physical issues that can result from excessive pornography use and masturbation. And if women are consuming as well, like, again, unlearning and relearning. So I think it's unfortunate because without accurate information, we take what we see to be true. And that's just so damaging. And it results in a lot of, like you said, like relationships ending or just people not being able to express how they're feeling. So they just put up with it. So it's, it's very, very, very important to talk about pornography. Yeah, absolutely. When I guess we are engaged in intimate act, how can we be checking in with ourselves and our partners to ensure that they're having a good time? I'm not sure if that's an accurate terminology, but making sure that they're kind of feeling safe and comfortable in their space. Yeah, you're right. Like checking in with them to ensure that they're experiencing pleasure and that you both are helping each other experience pleasure. That can be done in a couple of ways. The first is by asking. And a lot of times people are like, what? Like we need to be talking and communicating during sex. And it's like, yes, because pleasure originates in the brain. And it's felt across our body. So we don't want to assume that something feels good based on silence or their body language only. So we want to ask, like, does this feel good? 
aren't you being a party pooper that way? <laughs> no, because I think there's a misunderstanding that that's what happens. But when you're in the moment, there's a lot of research that shows that when spouses can communicate about intimacy, their pleasure is actually heightened versus spouses who don't communicate. It's kind of like mind reading, body reading. A lot of women are sometimes fake having pleasure and orgasm. So you can actually communicate in the heat of the moment. To, and that's natural. Like, you don't, it, does this feel good? And if not, like, maybe you talk before about like taking their hand and showing them what feels good. So it's not meant to be a silent act together. Like that's what a lot of people think. It's meant to be like communicative. And then you can also use body language as a sign, right? But also when you are in tune with your spouse, with their words, with their emotions, with their body language and physically, then that's going to be the most empowering way to kind of ensure that you're both receiving pleasure. Right. Okay. That's quite interesting because <laughs> you never think to communicate whilst you're engaging in something because I guess you're either too caught up in the moment or you're just, again, going with the flow to even think to have a conversation just because you don't want to, I guess, hurt or, or offend someone. I think that that's what would be going through my head is I don't want to come off as rude or offensive. That's just a female kind of thing, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's a common fear. And so what I recommend we can do is before we're sexually intimate, we can talk to our spouse about this. So we can say, for example, let's say I'm trying to give you pleasure and I'm not sure. Can I ask you? Like if you're not seeing any emotional or you're not hearing verbal signs of pleasure, then you might want to say beforehand, can I ask you? And it seems like it can be disruptive, but it actually shows that you care, that you're asking and that you're open to learning versus kind of assuming and being quiet about it, which can be harder to communicate um, with your spouse about. Okay. And would you suggest like in such situations to also have some sort of a code word? Code words you can use. They're typically used in situations where like more extreme forms of sexual pleasure are being attempted but you can, if you want to, come up with a word that maybe you both agree upon that's used if it's like, this doesn't feel great. And then that might be another way instead of needing to stop and explain everything. You could just do the code word and then say, all right, now move your hand here <laughs> or something like that to kind of keep it going. Yeah. Fair enough. And speaking of pleasure, one particular notion that we have that, again, is not spoken about is what about women who don't have partners and women that aren't in a relationship or women that are widows, for example, because there's that school of thought that widows can't remarry in certain cultures. Is self-pleasure, like masturbation, a thing? I guess if you could explain a little bit about it, whether or not it's healthy, whether or not it's permissible. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of context to masturbation. And I've created content about this. And there's a few things to think about. The first thing is that Muslims have differences of opinions because there's actually a difference of opinion Islamically. So some schools of thought will say absolutely not permissible haram category. Most scholars are actually saying it's a category below that, which is highly disliked. And so the, the reasoning behind that is 
if you are single and there's a choice between masturbation or premarital sex, the thought is that masturbation is this act of mercy where you're doing something that's disliked, but you're not doing something that's more disliked or impermissible like sex before marriage. So that's the reasoning that I've read about in terms of those two opinions. Muslims are very diverse with their understanding. And so some Muslims will follow those two and try their best to not masturbate and think of ways to channel sexual energy that's not sexual, for example. Other Muslims, for example, when we talk about pornography, 99% of men who watch pornography masturbate. So those two go hand in hand. And if it's an addiction, then that's just naturally happening. So, but talking about women, there has been some talk about women who are like, look, I'm single. I don't know when I'm going to get married. And this is getting really hard. Like I'm experiencing desire. And so there are some women who decide to masturbate and, and perform self-pleasure. And there are other women who don't. So I think this is a beauty of Islam is that we can each decide once we learn accurate information, like what we want to do. And ultimately, I always tell Muslims when they're like, well, can I masturbate? I'm like, why are you asking me? Like you're ultimately accountable for your actions. So if you're okay with it internally, that's kind of between you and God. That's Other people can't decide that for you. So I just tell Muslims, learn as much as you can about this topic and also where sexual desire comes from, like from a spiritual perspective. And we also sometimes use masturbation for other reasons like stress management. We also use it, for example, as a coping mechanism for anxiety. There are obviously many benefits that we know that Islam even talks about with masturbation and orgasm. And sometimes we do it for reasons that are coping mechanisms. So I always tell people, like, do a lot of like inner work and ask yourself, like, why? And also just learn about this topic, Islamically and sexual health wise. And then when you have all the information, really root yourself in who you are as a person and then make a decision from there. So really, it all comes back to your intentions and values. I think usually we have like this one track perspective in that once we see research shows that masturbation is so good for you, you know, you have all these X, Y, Z positives and benefits. That's kind of what we opt for. But then we kind of disregard the religion, the Islamic spirituality side of things and our values and who we are. So I think that's very much important to point to raise. Yeah, I think so. I think in a healthy way, like not the fear-based and shame-based way that we've been taught, but more like the empowering way, like there's actually a lot of information about sexual desire within our religion. So I'm trying to have Muslims learn about that so that they understand where it comes from and so they can realize that they have a choice. They're not chained to their desires. They're not like carried away by it, for example. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've had a few young people ask on our Instagram page at Open Q&A and one of the recurring questions that came up was feeling really fearful on the first night. I know we kind of touched base a little bit on that, but I wanted to go a little deeper and delve deeper into that. I think their major concerns were how could we prepare for our first night? Does it have to be sexual, physical affection, or can it be non-sexual? How can we go about just telling our partners that? I know we can start like at the very beginning, but I think they just have this fear that, Things can potentially change the first night. There's just so much pressure. 
I don't remember what show or movie it was, but that whole white sheet bleeding concept that was there. And I still remember that was I was, I think, fairly young. But I think there's just that kind of fear and so many questions around this first night. Yeah, it's a very common fear. And the first thing I often say is that there is no religious teaching that says sex must be had on the first night, the night of the nikah. There is nothing in Islam that says that, which tells us that there's a lot of flexibility because there's even hadith about a couple at the Prophet's time where the woman was not comfortable and the Prophet was like, of course you wouldn't be. Like, you just met him. Like, take days and take time to get to know each other. And so one of the problems is intimacy is seen as sexual intercourse, as like all or nothing. And that that's tied to virginity. That's tied to consummating your marriage, right? And that's not the Islamic compassion and religion that we know. So I always tell couples, if you can, talk about the wedding night before the wedding and understand that weddings are stressful and exhausting. You're also sharing a hotel room potentially in a place that's not comfortable. You're not going to be really most of the time in the mood to have sex. And even if you do have sex, it's not going to be great. Like expect it not to be great because it's the first time you're having sex with your spouse. And ideally, you want to spend time being comfortable around them. If you wear hijab, that's the first time maybe that they've seen you without hijab. It's maybe one of the first few times you're being physically intimate. So there's no rush with achieving an end goal. You'll have, inshallah, your entire marriage to be intimate with each other. So building comfort is the goal by using physical touch or just doing something like ordering pizza and watching a movie. I actually had one of my friends do that. They ordered pizza and watched a movie and then they went to bed cuddling each other. And she's like, it was beautiful because no pressure. Yeah, you got comfortable. So sex is going to happen usually pretty soon after a wedding if there's no issues. So spend time being you and men need to understand that there can't be any pressure either. Like they need to be completely okay with taking the time that needed. Uh, Such beautifully put. To wrap up and give some takeaway messages to our young people, whereabouts can they go to learn more about sexual health, sexual hygiene, and just having these safe, open conversations? Do you have any resources that you recommend? I'm putting out a lot of content and everything we talked about today, I already have content on my Instagram at Sexual Health for Muslims. There are some books that are really good for Muslims to read. For example, one is called Islamic Guide to Sexual Relations that talks about the whole process from getting married to having kids, kind of like how to navigate and what the conversations and also what our religion says. That's a really good book. There's a few resources that are Islamic, sexual health focused, and then other just sexual health ones, like one about females, desire and pleasure that women can read, Come As You Are. It's an awesome book. I think we need to kind of put together the Islamic stuff and the sexual health stuff, which is something that I'm working on doing. So everything's together in one place. Yeah, no, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Your Instagram page, by the way, is very elite. I'll share that with the listeners in a moment. Well, that concludes today's podcast. Thank you so much, Samira, for giving up your time this evening in the US to sit and be our guest. It was so lovely engaging in this conversation with you and I'm sure our listeners benefited from this as well. 
If at any point during this podcast you felt distressed, we encourage you to contact the following helplines, which are listed in the description box below. Um, thank you so much for listening into another podcast, and we're excited to bring forth many more. Stay in tune and watch this space for more exciting topics coming your way. In the meantime, go and check out our Instagram, which is at amwchr underscore youth and at amwchr, and also Samira's at Sexual Health for Muslims and give us a follow. Links will be provided in the description box below. Reach out if you have any comments or questions and we cannot wait to bring out more great content. Until next time.